just close your eyes and uh, gather your awareness to this present moment. And simply rest in the awareness of this present moment as I recite the beautiful mantra. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Swami Brahmananda Saraswati. Swami is an atypical monk. He trained as a monk in the Himalayas for 20 years and then came to the USA and studied physiology and health, then went on to medical school and is currently a graduate student at Johns Hopkins University, studying business with a focus on entrepreneurship, healthcare management, and organizational leadership. Drawing upon his diverse background and unique set of experiences, Swami designed Deep Mindfulness Training, or DMT, for high performance and work-life harmony. Swami takes a very hands-on, no-fluff, engaging, and fun approach to help his clients develop high-performing cognitive abilities, emotional and social intelligence, deep motivation, and resilience. Swami believes that all individuals, teams, and groups of people are unique and have unique needs and learning aptitudes. Therefore, he created customized DMT programs with hand-selected training tools, frameworks, and strategies to maximize clients' performance and satisfaction. Deep mindfulness training is a custom mix of mindfulness practices and emotional quotient training tools, strategies, frameworks, and lifestyle recommendations. And we're going to talk a little bit about DMT and some of Swami's other projects today. So with that, thank you so much, Swami, for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you. So I wanted to get started just by talking a little bit about your story and, you know, your own kind of spiritual path and what has led you to this inspiring, important work that you do today. Well, thank you, Jacob. Uh, thank you for welcoming me to this uh, beautiful podcast. So tell us a little bit about your own story. Well, my story is... Um, it's simple. I was born in India uh, to a nice little family of yogis. And uh, from there on, uh, I remember uh, 
something that, that happened very early on. And uh, depending on how you look at it, it can be a good thing that happened or a bad thing that happened. Yeah. Uh, so there were, um, I had this memory uh, of me being very little, like maybe under one year old, and uh, looking at this wall. And on the other side, I could hear some people were banging on the wall, you know, with hammers and other tools. And they broke down this wall. And then I saw about 20 people standing there with these tools, with these kind of dreadful, blank eyes, and just, uh, you know, broke down this wall. And then many years later, about, you know, seven, eight years later, when I was a little bit older, I asked my mom that, Mom, I remember this thing. I have this memory. Something like this ever happened. And she said, Yes, that did happen. When you were very little, the city people came and they broke down the front wall of our house. Mm. And uh, I said, okay, why did they do that? And uh, she said, well, your dad is a very honest and uh, righteous person, so he wouldn't pay the bribe they were asking for to sign the paperwork. And uh, that's why they came and did it. And I was like... Okay, but that incident, you know, very early on kind of made me aware of uh, this this vibration of ignorance, you know, this, uh, this energy of corruption and uh, antipathy and, and just this violence mm -hmm. being there. And I didn't want to succumb to it or, or in any way be victim of it or entertain that in my life, you know, do that to anybody. So I guess that became a huge influence from the very beginning. And I wanted to create something opposite of that, you know, something that, that ensured that people didn't treat each other this way. Because ultimately, on the other side of the wall, you have these 20 people. And uh, I'm sure that they had families. They were not necessarily, you know, like particularly bad people. But they engaged in this uh, silly act of violence. You know, they violated my family in some ways. And I was like, well, why? You know, what is it that a group of people can come and do this? <laughs> and, uh, and and how can we ensure that this does not happen and, and more people don't have to go through this? So there was this intention, this, this desire to do something that prevents this kind of energy to prevail. And then, you know, as growing up, you get to see society and in India, everything is very much in the open. Nothing yeah. is... <laughs> so you get to see the best and the worst of the society and uh, you just realize that there is a cycle there's a cycle of ignorance and incoherent energy and people are just falling prey to it not even consciously people act you know ignorantly incoherently out of ignorance you know out of just being unconscious or not having been introduced to a better way yeah so Luckily, I was born in a family of yogis. My parents, you know, they from the very beginning gave me something that's opposite of that. 
And then uh, they sent me to an ashram where I grew up learning all about how to create coherence and lead a service of love and, uh, and, and bliss. And it was, uh, so, so that's the story. And yeah. then after that, I wanted to become a monk because, uh, I witnessed all kinds of people and, um, I noticed that the people had moments, you know, of happiness and sadness and, and fun and then not so much fun. But one particular group of people seemed to have it best, and they were the monks. <laughs> <laughs> you've been to India, so you have seen it, that they are like kings without a kingdom. They're just walking around, doing whatever they do. They do it fully. They're loving life. And they truly know how to make lemonade when you give them lemons. So every time I spent time with monks, I felt that they were so even and, and so happy and so productive uh, that I was inspired to lead, lead a life like that. So around age 19, I went to my master and I was like, well, I want to just get ordained, you know, and become a Swami and uh, open up an ashram and that's what I want to do. And she said, well, not so fast. Uh, <laughs> she said that, well, you already have been learning all the Vedic knowledge, Vedic teachings, but the world is changing. And if you truly want to be a Swami and want to justice, do justice to, you know, that role in the society, then there's more that you need to learn. I say, well, what do you mean? I say, well, what, what is the purpose of being a Swami, being a monk? By this time, I knew that purpose of being a monk or Swami is about leading a life of service which is so much fun, by the way. Mm -hmm. So uh, she said, if that is the purpose, if you really want to be able to serve, then you have to think about that. Are you good enough servant of humanity or are there competencies that you still need to develop? And I say, well, you're right. You know, the world is a new world and uh, maybe there are more things I need to learn. She said, well, go to a college and, and get some Western education. So I was like, okay. So I studied hard. I went to IITs in India, which is like MITs of India. And then I dropped out in two weeks. I was like, okay, this is for me. And the reason is academics were good, but the culture very much was there that we're going to study hard and become slave of some multinational company, you know, yeah. accumulate a lot of wealth, have a big house, swimming pool, boats and all those things. And that was not my dream. I was there to build competencies so I can be better servant. But I knew that how important it is to be surrounded by the right kind of culture, right kind of people. Absolutely. So I went back to Ostrom. I said, look, I studied hard. I got into this college and uh, it didn't work out. And she said, OK, I know a place. Uh, I said, OK, what is this place? And she said, well, go to America. I said, what? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> I just left a college because I didn't want to go and become servant of some big multinational. You were sending me to the hub office. And she was like, no, it's not like that. And uh, then she sent me to America. I came to this uh, beautiful university in the middle of Iowa, mm -hmm. uh, Fairfield, Mars University of Management. Mm -hmm. And uh, it truly was like a little piece of Himalayas in the middle of nowhere. Wow. Yeah, 
I remember uh, reaching to the Chicago airport and then going to the university. And I'm like, okay, this seems odd. But then in the morning you wake up and there are these huge domes and you have like thousands of people just walking in the morning to sit down and meditate together. And you can feel that vibration, that energy. So this is a college in Iowa? Yeah. There's thousands of people meditating? Yes, yes. So there are thousands of people meditating. It was a university started by Maharshi Mahesh Yogi. It's called Maharshi University of Management. And uh, they had a beautiful program uh, in computer science. I came as a computer science student, and then I switched to pre-med. So I studied physiology and health because uh, that was more intriguing to me. And uh, that's what I did there. I meditated, did research in consciousness, and uh, studied health and then went to medical school and then uh, now studying business. So this is the story, all basically for one purpose, which is to maximize my services to the humanity. Yeah. So that's fascinating. And I I can't believe I've never heard of this school that you went to. And I'm going to start telling everybody about it because more people need to do that. Go to college and meditate (laughs) all day. That sounds amazing. Um, So now... I want to talk a little bit about so you're you've been doing these incredible programs you're you know we I mentioned in the in your bio that you, you've started this deep mindfulness training which we had a laugh before the interview started that that's the same acronym as DMT which is a psychedelic <laughs> so I think that's great that we have a, a non psychedelic form of DMT and as you said probably more potent and, and then you also have the Swami Yoga Club. And, and so I just wanted you to talk a little bit about these for a moment. What is, um, you know, what's the essence of deep mindfulness training? Um, we'll start with that. What is the essence of deep mindfulness training? Well, so deep mindfulness training is a, a mindfulness-based management program or training that I have designed for the people who really want to make a change in society, want to save the society through their entrepreneurial or other endeavors in life. And uh, being in business school, especially at Johns Hopkins, where, you know, most of the people are A-type, it's uh, it's interesting to see, you know, sometimes uh, situations get heated up, people are feeling this high amount of pressure to be productive. And all that pressure and all this focus to complete the projects actually leads to less than what is possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see a lot of entrepreneurs, a uh, lot of uh, very intelligent, bright people fail or not do their best, not accomplish you know, what they're capable of because they don't have the tools that they really need to succeed. And they have the technical, a lot of time is spent on building analytical and technical skills, Mm -hmm. but you need more than that to succeed, to be able to create something beautiful, something powerful. And in my monkhood and my training as a monk, I realized that I have received that training and that's something that's very essential. Almost everybody should have it. And, uh, there are three elements you know, to high performance. Uh, first is your cognitive abilities. To be able to perform and succeed and, and make uh, a big change uh, the right way, you need to have a strong nervous system, a highly capable nervous system. 
And your analytical abilities and technical abilities are just a fraction of that equation. You need to be able to focus, you need to be able to stay calm and cool, and you need to have that mental clarity, you need to have that mental flexibility. So how do you develop that? It's, uh, it's very easy, especially for high receivers to get siloed in and, and get ultra focused just on the technical and analytical side of the, the brain's and the nervous system's abilities and not develop the other parts. Mm-hmm. So the first dimension is uh, helping people develop more deeper cognitive abilities. And uh, there are some tools out there, uh, like some meditation apps and meditation services. But in my experience, people are unique. And uh, especially when they are working in different fields, uh, they have different needs. And uh, the one size fit all theory doesn't work. Right. And that's why even in, uh, in a spiritual traditions, you can see that Ultimately, the, the basic idea of meditation, mindfulness techniques is the same, but they devise so many different tools and techniques because they realized that there were so many different kind of people that were coming to become monks and they had different needs. So that's the first area we address. We give the people tools and techniques to develop those higher cognitive abilities, uh, basically how to become resilient and overcome all kind of stress and anxiety being able to stay focused for a long time, being able to stay mentally clear and flexible. So that part. Then there is second aspect of high performance, and that is uh, about your heart and emotion. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are animals, uh, just like other animals on the planet, <clears throat> and we are social animals. And uh, anytime we have a social situation, we experience emotions. Now, how good you are at understanding those emotions, regulating those emotions, moving those emotions, is going to basically define and determine that how successful you are going to be, Mm -hmm. whatever it is that you're trying to create and do. And if you look at the people who have been very successful in all different fields, you will find that they have been exceptionally emotionally intelligent. Uh, they have been very good at being able to understand their emotions and regulate it in some way, uh, some in more sustainable way, some in not sustainable way, but they had some handle over it. And then the empathy is a big part of it because if you are trying to create, especially in the world of business, you, you are trying to create something for others that others can use, You'll have to be able to understand them, their emotions, their needs. So you need to be able to tap into that. And that's beyond just the idea of measuring KPIs and stuff like that. So based on my training as a monk and training in the field of physiology and health, I have designed uh, certain frameworks and tools uh, that we customize for uh, teams or the people's needs, and we help them with that. I'll give you a little, uh, little insight here in the EQ part. So there is a Buddha talked about the, the lotus of the heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are six petals to this, this lotus. And it's interesting. And let me draw it for you. So 
uh, I'm very much a pen and paper guy. <laughs> so we'll have to explain this to the people who are listening because most people will just hear this on audio. So we'll explain what we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So I, I'll, I'll explain it as I'm drawing it for them. So okay, let's say perfect. <laughs> a little center of the lotus and maybe our listeners can grab a pen and paper and they can start drawing it with us. Yeah, that'd be great. So we draw a circle and then let's draw a petal. So, well, actually, let's just draw all six. So you draw six petals, basically. Okay, so now if you have a circle and you have six petals around it, then the first petal, let's talk about purpose. Purpose, mm-hmm. So there are emotions related to that drive, that purpose, that dharma, the idea, what is dharma? And there are a lot of t terms for it. There's a lot of explanations. But as I say, I try to take a very concrete, non-fluffy approach to life and my teachings. What I have understood about Dharma, that it's about purpose. It's about the force of evolution that's deeply driving you from within. Mm -hmm. Like we were talking before this interview, you know, what is driving us. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and reasons can come along the way, stories can unfold, but I think beyond all that, we are already born with some innate, deep calling that's unique to us. Yeah. And, and that dharma, that force, that purpose is important. And there are emotions related to that, yeah. that show up. And uh, how much those emotions align with your reality around you. Uh, is directly going to impact how successful you're going to be. Because if you are in an environment where emotions related to your drive, your personal purpose doesn't match to that of the cohort around you, mm -hmm. you're going to waste a lot of time and energy just resolving that conflict, fighting that battle, rather than actually following up on it. So that's first one. But let's go a little bit down. So, you know, from purpose, let's go a little bit down to next pedal. And that is the pedal of sleep. Mm. Yeah. Very important. <laughs> uh, so the idea of sleep in, uh, in the Vedic philosophy is a little bit deeper than what we understand in terms of sleep, right? Right. So there is sleep uh, as um, just the act of being tired and just going to sleep, and then you just close your eyes and you know, uh, wake up. But the idea of sleep in Vedas and, and in the monk traditions are, that there is a build-up process to it, which is you build up tiredness. Mm. You, you, know, you lose potency as you go through your day. Just think about your uh, phone batteries. They lose charge as you use them. Yeah. So over time, so the sleep cycle is actually building up when you are living. You are, the more and more you perform on your purpose, your, on your drive, the mental, physical uh, resources are going to be used up. And you're going to create this energetic debt. And uh, then at some point, you will need to take a break and you need to recharge. So then the recharging cycle is there. So there's a discharging part and then there's recharging part. And that is the sleep cycle. So now the there are tools and techniques you know, that you learn as a monk that can make the cycle very efficient so that throughout the day you can be on your purpose, you can be performing at very peak levels without losing too much energy so that at night you need very little 
mm-hmm. time to just recharge and uh, and then next day you are ready again. Mm-hmm. So that's the part and, and there are emotions related to it. So again, we are talking about emotional energy. So think about all kind of emotions that you experience when you are tired. It, there are different, and, and it, you can create actually problems if there's too much debt in your relationships. Yeah. Work <laughs> because you're just out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I've experienced taken, that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you take an overnight flight, you are not properly charged up, and then you meet some important people. Uh, and then you say things that you shouldn't have said, you do things that you shouldn't have done. And then when you have rested and you are thinking back, you're like, what did I do? Right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) There's that, but then there is something more. So let's go to the next pedal. The next pedal is about anger. Mm. So pedal of anger is, um, is interesting. You know, it's, uh, this is a dimension of our heart, and, and regardless how enlightened or unenlightened you are, and uh, you are going to feel this energy. This energy is there in you. This is a dimension. This is a facet of your heart. Now, when you get enlightened, you are able to work with this energy and use it constructively, do things constructively. But if you are not enlightened, if you don't have the right tools, then this can get compounded. You know, if you are more tired, this can get in the way of you achieving your purpose. And uh, you can just get caught up into this storm created by emotions related to anger energy. Mm -hmm. So there are, you know, tools and techniques you learn, very hands-on stuff that can help you manage and actually not just suppress or get rid of anger because that's not the kind of teachings at least I stand for. I feel like all dimensions of the heart energy should be explored and there are some divine purposes to them. So, but you have to know how to work with. So there is that, but then if you move from anger pedal to next pedal, then there is the pedal of, you wanna guess it? Um, It's the pedal of violence. Violent. Okay, we're just getting deeper and more intense here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so then there's the pedal of violence, and uh, and this is something that I'll talk more about when we uh, go in uh, the yogi code. But violence is is also part of our nature. Mm. There are, you know intentional or unintentional actions that we engage in where we are hurting, we are destroying something. And uh, and what to do with it, how to manage those emotions, those tendencies, uh, that's a, a big thing. And I've noticed that a lot of high performers, high achievers, their heart gets so out of whack that <laughs> this violence pedal really blooms and, and end up hurting themselves a lot, end up hurting others a lot. And uh, no matter how good of a person you are, but if you're not mindfully managing your emotions uh, and you don't have the right tools and techniques to work with the emotional intelligence aspect of your life, then these things are going to pop up. And if they're not managed and regulated, they are going to destroy you, destroy what you're creating, and hurt other people. Yeah. So, 
So there's that, but we'll talk more about how to manage this later. Just a thought on that. I really like this because, um, you know, I think anger and violence are a couple of those things that people like to just kind of disavow and repress, or it's like, oh, no, that's not me. I'm a good person. I don't have those. And what I like about what you're saying is that essentially, you know, by by forcing, by not acknowledging that as a part of human nature, you're act, and 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 cultivating the skills to to manage it, you're actually letting it run free and blossom in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. Yes, yes, exactly right, and uh, and that's why it's important. But <laughs> you bring up something uh, important, which is this attitude of denial. Yeah. Or the attitude of just uh, giving a you know blind eye to to these important aspects of our human nature. I've been to a lot of spiritual settings, and what really annoys me uh, is some things are about the the neo spiritual movements. Is uh, you know, I, I at some point I want to tell them that get real, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's not all hunky dory kind of stuff in life. There are going to be situations where you are going to feel angry, and maybe sometimes you are supposed to feel angry. Otherwise, maybe you have no empathy. Because think about it: if there's some injustice going on in the society, and, and you you don't feel that the, that dimension of your heart is opening up, that something is wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if if a child is being hurt, let's say by a big company's product, and you don't feel anger towards it, I, you know, I don't think that you are anywhere near enlightenment. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's a really important message. Yeah, how you act on it is different, of course. An enlightened person wouldn't just break out into violence. You know, will understand that that energy and take that energy and do something constructive with it. Exactly. But acknowledging it is important. So yeah. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah. So there is uh, anger and violence, but let's move on from there. So I will show it to you, because even though our uh, audiences cannot see it. See, I started at here. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of uh, go down. So this, we were taking a downward turn, but now we are about to start coming up. So we'll start seeing more upward moving energies. Okay, yes. Okay. Let's go for it. So the, so the next thing is play. Uh, so there are, you know, as human beings, we have emotions uh, related to playfulness and uh, and fun, and uh, and it's it's important. Uh, you know, one thing that I think has hurt uh, the corporate uh, communities and and the entrepreneurs and high performers and other people too is when there's too much of suppression of this playful energy. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we would have achieved the kind of technical innovation we are achieving now, you know, maybe a few decades back, if it was not so much this black tie and formal and, and monolithic culture. Yeah. I think the millennials are changing it. There is more acceptance, you know, there's more fun in the workplace. And because of that, there is this greater mental and emotional agility and we are finding all kind of unique technologies and in a way to things popping up so play has a huge role and it also helps you kind of delegate and regulate other energies that we just talked about so far so there are there's that but then how to integrate it you know you can talk about we can talk about all these concepts but how to integrate it in your work environment in your relationships 
in your personal life. And uh, that is something that we do at DMT by working with person and customizing that aspect with people. Beautiful. So do we have any other, um, we had playfulness, and then do we have any other um, pedals? Yeah, so we only have gone so far, one, two, three, four, five. And um, there are six, we, right? Six pedals? Well, there are actually eight pedals. Oh, eight uh, pedals, okay. Yeah. So, uh, and, just uh, for, and just so everybody knows who's listening, um, when we started the, the, the flower, we um, start on the, about the, the pedal that's at about three o'clock, and then we're moving in a clockwise direction as we, as we go through these other pedals, just to kind of give you an orientation. Yes. So that's exactly right. So we're starting from three and going clockwise. We'll go all the way back to three. So there are three more paddles left here. We have covers of our five. There are eight total. So the next idea is letting go. The, the, this, is, uh, this is the important aspect. So uh, there are energies uh, related to this aspect uh, of letting go. But the thing is, when you're talking about letting go, uh, our society doesn't really prepare for it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, actually there is a, there's a socially engineered way of um, making sure that, uh, that we don't let go. Right. Uh, there's a lot of, I mean, the lot of corporate uh, structure is promote consumption. Yeah. How do you promote consumption? And inevitably, when you are trying to do that mindlessly, you train people, you train societies to not let go and to want be attached, more. To be attached to the things you they're supposed to consume. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, being an entrepreneur, this is, uh, this is something even for me, working with people, working with entrepreneur, like how do you built that in to the systems, to the services, to the structures, into the life that you built for yourself. Uh, how do you build that uh, and, and how important it is? Because if you don't let go, uh, first of all, you don't create the possibility, the room for something new to come, something new to grow. And then maybe there is baggage that is constantly slowing you down from the past. Mm -hmm. Letting go is important. I guess everybody who's listening probably understands and also knows how hard it is to let go. Yeah. Uh, so maybe few things more harder than, than others, but it can get pretty hard. So we help people uh, at DMT uh, by giving the, the tools and techniques that I learned as a monk uh, so that they can also easily let go and, and make letting go process a more uh, manageable and more uh, you know easy easier process rather than it being a difficult or like heart-wrenching process right so we have that uh, then we have two more pedals so the next pedal is about pleasure desire mm -hmm. and, and this is an aspect of our heart you know we feel it uh, <laughs> the reality is your brain is programmed for it. Uh, there is uh, these rhythms of uh, hormones and neurotransmitters that take place. I mean, talk about uh, glands like pituitary glands, let's say, you know, there are a specific time, a specific chemicals released that make you want to do things mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and experience certain things. And uh, one grief I have with... Uh, the, the spiritual traditions, some of the traditions, uh, 
and, and uh, orthodoxy is uh, this dimension that really has not been accepted and explored a lot, which is funny to me because what I'm talking about is what Buddha was talking about. And he, you know, if you read deeply enough uh, and, and uh, you know, learn with the real traditional masters, these are topics that are openly discussed and you are uh, encouraged to explore and, and develop a more enlightened, mindful relationship with these dimensions of life. Mm-hmm. But... So in other words, what you're saying is that this, because uh, I feel like we're sort of skirting around um, this idea, which is commonplace, which is that, you know, you shouldn't have desire, you should somehow, you know, repress desire or control desire. And and you're talking about a much more kind of um, seemingly open-minded, but, um, but a, a kind of an exploratory relationship with something that is quite natural rather than something that is seen to be kind of evil and, and not conducive to the spiritual life? Yes, exploratory and mindful and constructive. You can use the, the, the cycles of desire and emotions related to it to create actually something beautiful for yourself and others. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a simple example. Let's say a desire around food. You know, we, we all feel desires around food. Yeah, we do. <laughs> to, to some degrees. Now, if you just mindless, well, there, there are two approaches I've seen majority of people take. Either they suppress it and they just force themselves to eat things that they don't really appreciate, that they don't really enjoy, but because somebody told them this is the right thing to do, this is the good thing to eat, they do that. Um, or there are other group of people who just mindlessly jump into it and whatever they feel like eating, they just eat that and they just enjoy it. And I think both can be very harmful. Uh, but there is a third and much better way, which is go explore. If you feel like having something, eating something, don't just go ahead and jump and eat it. But just pay attention to that desire. You know, be mindful of what it is that you are actually feeling. And sometimes, maybe not in the beginning, but if you do enough practice and with enough time, you'll actually start to realize that you are misunderstanding your own desires. Maybe when you wanted to eat the chocolate cake, what you really wanted is maybe a little bit of water. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe when you were wanting to eat that piece of chocolate cake, what you really needed was more iron, maybe more protein, maybe more nourishment. Maybe you needed a hug. So, <laughs> maybe, Swami, you're not telling me that I can't have my chocolate cake, are you? Because I'm going to need that cake. <laughs> have your chocolate cake. Absolutely. I, I actually want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. If we can do a little exercise. If you feel like really having chocolate cake, buy it. Buy the best kind. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sit down with it. Before you just devour it, at least think about what what are the things going on inside you? What are you feeling? Then when you're eating it, pay more attention to it. Yeah. Over time, you'll realize that this process takes time. It may sound even a little bit you know, uh, exuberant and not as monastic. But over time, the things that you really don't need fall off. And things that you really, really need, you start to understand. Yeah. And, and then the cycle of desire becomes pratyahara. So there's big misunderstanding in the yoga world about pratyahara. Pratyahara usually is understood as suppression of senses. But prati means towards, and ahara means feeding. Mm. So feeding for, instead of not feeding. So the pratyahara true practice is feeding yourself 
the right things mm. it, to create the coherence to create the vibrance to create the harmony to create the vibrance potency in you so when you look at yogis and you see them that oh they don't eat certain things well because there's only little room you don't put garbage in your stomach <laughs> you they want to just only put the things that they really need so maybe to an outsider it looks like they are actually sacrificing some pleasure and things but that's not the case they're immensely enjoying their spinach bowl so <laughs> yeah wow so, i love that translation of pratyahara that's so good mm -hmm. yeah so that's pratyahara and then there's the last thing and the last thing is uh in the uh, in the paddle mm -hmm. the last paddle uh and it's interesting how it comes right between the purpose and the uh, purpose at the three o'clock and the desire at the 12 o'clock uh, right between there uh, somewhere at one o'clock two o'clock you see this uh, pedal of compassion pedal of uh, altruism you know uh, wanting to give wanting to love wanting to support and you feel these emotions and uh, and a lot of times I also find uh, that in more and more in modern families and the uh, entrepreneurial environments, not much space is given. And the part of it is that it's talked about, you know, as, as a dressing on the cake or like a feather on the cap kind of situation. Mm -hmm. But it is not integrated as bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the, when it's not part of the bottom line, then you start to see uh, society which you start to see very dry. And that's why there's a, this uh, disenchantment from the general public or the, the younger generation towards these big monolithic corporations because somewhere in that culture, that energy of empathy, that energy of altruism, that energy of compassion was not directly integrated to their bottom line goals. Yeah. Same thing in the families, you see so many broken relationships, broken hearts, broken families because there's not proper space given to understand this aspect of your heart. So we work and we, we work with the teams, we work with entrepreneurs, we work with individuals and we help them, we give them the tools to cultivate and understand this aspect of their energy. Yeah. So these are eight battles and it all comes back to the purpose. So it's a cycle and you basically go through all of it and you come back to the purpose and you come back to the purpose, you come back to Dharma, the Dhamma. And then, you know, that becomes your beat. You, yeah. you always come back to your dharma, and then everything aligns. That's beautiful. I love that. And so we could call this the eight petals of DMT or deep mindfulness training. Is that how you yeah. look at it? So these are the eight petals of the deep mindfulness training, especially related to the EQ part, the, the emotional intelligence that we I was talking about. And see. talking about us being emotional animals, emotional beings, experiencing those emotions in all different situations and how to handle them. EQ, I just realized that that's in contrast to IQ. Wow, yeah. I'm, I'm a little <laughs> slow today, Swami. Um, that's amazing and so important because I think you're absolutely right. It's, you know, we have this focus on an intellectual IQ and 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 really I, I feel like what it, every so much of what you said it keeps coming back to is this idea that emotional skills have to be cultivated they have to be get they have to be, we have to provide space for exercising them otherwise they become you know petrified essentially or they they're like a muscle that doesn't ever get used essentially so now let's <clears throat> let's move into another um, list of 
awesome things, <laughs> the Yogi Code, which um, is 11 principles of yoga every yogi must follow. So do you want to talk about this, the Yogi Code generally and, and, and sort of how you have um, developed it? Obviously, it's not completely new. Some of it comes from um, the yoga tradition or uh, perhaps all of it does. But um, how did you develop these 11 principles? Absolutely, Jacob. So before we move on to Yogi Code, I just want to hit on the last part of the DMT. Which oh, yes, is, please. Oh, which is the deep drive. Mm -hmm. So there's deep mind. We talked about mind. We talked about deep heart and the eight petals of the heart. And now uh, this third aspect, and which is the motivation. Mm. Uh, if you don't have a deeper motivation, if you're only driven by these superficial things, then you are headed for crisis and a lot of A-type people do that they are just driven by these superficial projects they need to complete one project then another project then another project and there comes a time when they have done enough of those projects and they're like well, what am I doing at all you know yeah. <laughs> what is driving so it's good to prepare from the beginning and uh, so the deep motivation aspect of the training deals with helping people removing the self-limiting beliefs cultivating that deep motivation that is more aligned with the values that you know that are more true to their nature they might not even know what values are actually they are embodying yeah. so we help them understand explore those values and then there's third aspect and that is energy if you're just tired if you don't feel like getting up if you feel groggy then your motivation is going to be down your performance is going to be down so in that aspect we also work with people looking at their physical lifestyle and we try to craft something custom that will help them stay energetic and vibrant throughout their day and throughout their life cycle so that's the motivation part and that together makes the dmt the deep mindfulness training wow excellent so then how does this the dmt then connect to the yogi code is there some overlap or how do we look at sort of what the um you know what the thrust is of dmt versus uh, or the the eight pedals that we were talking about versus the yogi code so basically as you can see that you know part of my my life story is i trained 20 years as a monk in himalayas yeah uh, other than you know going to the school studying the physiology and health studying the business uh but i guess i schools are years are you know less compared to number of time or years I spent as a monk and uh, the idea of DMT is basically a distilled down set of uh, knowledge uh, and trainings and framework that I learned as a monk as a yogi mm -hmm. basically Jacob uh, not everybody wants to become uh, a full-on monk uh, they want to achieve this high performance. They have these goals in their life and they are doing something worthwhile. And uh, they just uh, want to sharpen up their competencies, their IQ, EQ, and motivation competencies. And uh, not just want to, uh, in my observation, every entrepreneur needs this. So the DMT part is really designed, minus all the fluff and all the exuberance of the spirituality, and it's just yeah. bare bones, uh, of uh, utility tools from the yogic and monkic traditions combined with the modern science uh, that we give out to performers and uh, entrepreneurs and driven people to improve their performance and make their social impact. 
the yogi code is more like source code of all this. <laughs> the mother of everything that I have to offer. And uh, as I told you that my original training is as a monk for 20 years. Yep. And uh, I was lucky in many ways. I mean, think about it, even though I was born to a very humble family uh, with just family of yogis. My biggest resource was this beautiful mother and father that I had and then sisters and brothers. And uh, the, the goal of life as a unit or as a, as a family, uh, their goal was to, to create coherence, to live coherence, to live yoga every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the profit maximization uh, as a family was not the goal. <laughs> the goal was bliss maximization, positivity maximization. You know, the days it started not with the, these lists of to do things, but you know, with prayers and chants, and uh, and the food was not so much about how good it can taste, but it was how sattvic it can be. And then the work and service was more about of my family. It was not about how much we can take from society, but it was how much we can contribute. Uh, so, you know, as, as a family, we played a very important role in our village. Uh, my grandfather, my father, uh, they were uh, the gurus, the, the teachers of their community. And uh, basically, a lot of their day was spent counseling and then just giving help and uh, direction to the young people and older people in the community so that the community can be more coherent. And uh, so that's what they did. Uh, we had enough land, so, so the, the sources of income was like, we had enough land that gave us enough food, and then uh, there was enough maybe food produce left that could be sold that uh, uh, brought up enough income to pay for college and clothing and stuff. But that was it. But that was enough. That was more than enough. I, I find myself, I think, I couldn't have asked for a better family to be born in because yeah. they motivated me to... Uh, and taught me from the very beginning that there are much higher things that as a human being you can experience and achieve and engage in rather than chasing some arbitrary material object. Yeah. So uh, I learned from them, but then uh, I connected with the Sankrachar tradition because that's the mm-hmm. tradition that you know we follow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to meet all these monks and masters. Uh, in the beginning as a child, uh, I spent a lot of time in the ashrams in central India. And uh, the central India is this beautiful place. Lord Ram lived there for 12 years. And we have this little mountain. It's called the Kamadhiri Mountain, Chitrakut. And uh, every new moon, hundreds of thousands of people came to this mm-hmm. place from all the villages around. Wow. And they will come. And these are not... Uh, you know, people with free time and free resources. These are busy people with very limited time, limited resources. They have crops waiting. They have, you know, other things going on. They they literally are squeezing out every penny and every minute they can to make this trip. But hundreds of thousands of people from about thousands of villages around will come and just take a circle around and say their prayers, meditate, and go back. And it was not based on that, oh, this is a magical mountain. It will make their life better or worse. It was really a matter of connecting with the higher dimensions, higher power, and just being part of that experience. Yeah. 
So uh, that's where my, you know, I spent a lot of childhood and, and learning from the monks and masters and uh, my grandfather and father. And then at some point I moved to Himalayas and uh, in the ashram there at Sankaracharya Ashram, I got uh, to have these amazing masters, Mahasiddhas, uh, some of the, the teachers, uh, you know, you, you don't even get to meet unless... Uh, unless they say yes, you can meet, yeah. uh, which is uh, beautiful because I've been to many schools. I mean, for example, Hopkins, they only accept 11 percent people. So like, you know, they're saying no to maybe 90, uh, the 89 percent or 88 percent people. But these masters, they have zero percent acceptance rate. <laughs> they- <laughs> You can have like maybe, you know, 10,000 people come search for them and never see them. Wow. So I was lucky, you know, call it the, the, the karma from past or the, the blessings of the family that I got to spend time with all these masters and got to learn uh, very deeply all different aspects of Vedas. Mm. And uh, so the yogi code is something I... Uh, I've created out of all the teaching, and it is more of a springboard for anybody who wants, who's serious and sincere about their spiritual journey. So if somebody really, let's say they wanted to be like, okay, Swamiji, you are a monk, you are a yogi, how do I become a monk? How do I become a yogi? Now, I know that I had access to all these masters. I was there. I was born there. Uh, but what about a person, let's say, born in Iowa or New York, you know, and they are like, well, they have this true calling. They want to become this yogi in the true means, you know. Then this question of how do I start? Do I start by, uh, you know, starting singing mantras and uh, started joining, you know, these uh, uh, hippie uh, themed, you know, situations? Uh, I just take off and travel to the east like what do I do right there's a big question there and uh, the answer is simple in in my all these years of training as a monk and as a yogi the answer is simple all that is secondary the primary thing is a yogi must have a code you must follow a certain set of values if you adopt these certain set of values the 11 yogi codes then everything that needs to happen will start to happen and and the yoga will start to blossom uh, and then the masters uh, that are right for you will start to appear in your life the situations which are going to enhance your yoga journey will start to emerge in your life so everything then starts to come then the support of nature starts to come but the mm-hmm. yoga just starts to blossom you have to plant the seeds and just keep nurturing them, and then you create this whole jungle full of bliss. So the yogi code is uh, a springboard for a person who wants to take that journey. Mm. And uh, it's really come to that realization that you were talking about in the beginning, that there's nothing higher to do than this. Yeah. Okay, wow. That's a great introduction to the yogi code. So now let's sort of unpack them a little bit and and go through them one by one because we'll assume that there are some people listening to this podcast who do want to go on this deeper yogic journey. I would say probably the majority of them do in, in one form or another. So the first principle is Atta Yoga Anushasanam. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so the first principle is first principle and uh, it is 
the, the very first Yoga Sutra, which is yeah. Atta Yoga Anusasana, it's highly overlooked. Uh, it's like... A, it's like skip to number two. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the message in the plain sight that completely ignored. And the thing is, if you don't understand this first principle, all your readings, everything else, I'm not saying that you're not going to get some utility, but you might as well not have read it because uh, <laughs> it's not leading you to that high place. Yeah. So the commitment to this uh, this first principle is important. The Atta Yoga Anusasana means now begins the Anusasana of yoga. Anusasana is what? Is the government, the governance of yoga, the discipline of yoga. But discipline not in the sense of you trying, discipline in the sense of uh, governing a structure like you have governments. So uh, basically you are saying now begins the rule of yoga. And, and you're saying now, like in this moment, in this moment. So you're not talking about that in future, <clears throat> I will start allowing yoga to become ruling energy, ruling principle in my life. You're saying now, in this moment, yoga, the, the coherence, the principle of integration, to create bliss will become ruling principle, number one principle in my life. And if you just, if you commit to that first principle, you can close all the books and you're fine. Mm -hmm. Because think about it, Jacob. Like if you say that I, Jacob, from today on, gonna allow the idea of yoga, the, the intelligence of yoga to rule all my actions and all dimensions of my life, do you need anything else? Because then you are intelligent being, you are divine human that you are, and every human being is capable of knowing what is coherent, what is not. Yeah. And then as you, if you start with this intention, then your understanding of what is more coherent is start to deepen, and over time you'll figure out. And that's the beautiful thing about yogic traditions. You have met, uh, I'm sure you have met, and I have met a lot of masters from around the world who have never received any formal training, yeah. but somehow they have come to understand this first principle that all my actions, all my efforts, all my dimensions of life are going to be ruled with the intention of creating yoga, creating coherence, creating integration to that leads to bliss and harmony. Mm -hmm. And they are doing that, and out of that, everything else and beautiful knowledge and work is created. So that's the first principle. and. Uh, Somebody asked me, well, what makes a person yogi? A yoga certification from Yoga Alliance doesn't make you a yogi. Nope. Uh, <laughs> now, getting initiated by any master also doesn't make you a yogi. Being a high priest or low priest doesn't make you a yogi. Uh, being a famous person who can do bendy stuff doesn't make you a yogi. What makes you a yogi is, are you committed to this first principle? If you had chosen this first principle, you can be in coma and you are the greatest yogi, yeah. but if you have not come to this, then you can be anybody. And in my eyes, uh, you know, from what I have learned from my masters, I would not consider that person a yogi. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Good that's point. the first principle. Yeah. So then the second one, which blossoms out of that, is compassion. Yes. So what are your thoughts on on compassion as the as the second principle? Well, compassion is um, is a prerequisite for you to be able to act on this commitment. There are a lot of other uh, principles that, that are in, in it, but unless you have compassion, 
you will miss the point. Mm. If you're not compassionate, if you're not kind, you'll miss the point. And uh, I've encountered many young, even old, driven people who have given their life to the path of yoga, who are very bitter in their approach. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> There's no consideration for the fine feelings and emotions and, and you know of other living beings. In that case, how can there be any progress? Yeah. If God is true, you know, if um, if these higher beings, higher energies are true, in their right mind, why would they let you elevate to anything higher <laughs> in life if you're not compassionate? Because if you're not compassionate and you gain power, especially spiritual power, that means that can be dangerous for nature. That can be dangerous for this existence. Mm -hmm. So you need to be compassionate. And uh, if you're compassionate, then all other things will come easily. So mm. it's prerequisite. You need to be compassionate. Mm. But, you know, and I like in the notes that I have for this, um, the compassion is something that you remark on is how a lot of people consider themselves compassionate. Um, because I think anybody out there is probably like, oh, yeah, I'm compassionate. Um, because we're sort of trained to think that's sort of what you have to be. Um, so what's the difference between, you know, what, how do you, what is the difference between someone who might think they're compassionate, but actually practicing compassion, you know, and how, how does one take a, the steps to kind of start to cultivate more compassionate action in their life? Yes. So the, the term for compassion is karuna. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and karuna is a matter of, um, that being able to connect, being able to feel that oneness, that the ka, the ka means um, taking your potency, all your energy that is there, and uh, making it focused. Mm. And then ra is the idea of um, the threefold abilities you have to manipulate, which is basically you can create something, you can sustain something, you can destroy something. And then ra, ra is the point that you direct to. So the compassion is basically, in, in a very technical sense, this action, this activity of taking your totality, focusing it, and then intelligently choosing these three areas, you know, whether to dissolve something, whether to create something, whether to sustain a reality, that matters for point A, point B, person A, person B, living being A, living being B. And you want to do that in a way that creates a more blissful reality, more mudita for that person, more mudita for you. So that is compassion. Mm. Mm. That's a really beautiful way to put it. So now third, uh, our third um, principle is courage. Yes. So what about courage? Well, you need courage. Uh, it's a, it, so these are two qualifications you need. First, you need commitment, and these are the two qualifications, compassion and courage. Mm -hmm. If uh, Think about Gandhi. Think about Martin Luther King. You know, what are the defining factors there? You know, these are two great yogis you know, in, in, that a common person can understand about. First, you have to have that empathy, that calling to, to contribute positively to people, to the environment they're part of. But the second, you need courage because you can have that, but are, sometimes that requires 
standing up to, to a challenge. It can come in form of authority. It can come in form of just uh, the sheer amount of effort you need to put in. Mother Teresa, think about her, mm-hmm. how much effort she had to put in to you know help. And a lot of times uh, you will be judged in the process. You'll be laughed in the process. You will be you know like uh, told that these these are pipe dreams. You know these are moonshots. But in order to sustain the the process, the action of yoga, you will need to be courageous mm-hmm. and you'll need all kind of courage because all kind of challenges will come just because you are yogi. You don't get a special treatment. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's an important one. And, and, and fear, which is sort of, you know, the counterpart to this or what's what you're sort of seeking to conquer through your courage is, is something that is, is kind of rampant in, in, in so many different ways. And, and so I appreciate that as being one of these principles because I don't think courage is often in included in some of the kind of outlines of, of yogic values, at least the ones that I've seen. I'm thinking, you know, the the eight limbs and stuff like that. So courage is a great one. So in uh, then number four is abhyasa, which means practice. And I and I imagine by this it's not just about, you know, a fancy asana practice. But it's about something else. So, do you want to talk about what abhyasa or practices from this perspective? Yes. So, the compassion and uh, and courage were the the two qualifications you needed. And then there is the idea of um, practice. So, so there's more. Okay. So now, let's say you have commitment and you have the right qualifications. You have the courage. You're not going to succumb to fears. You're going to overcome then okay, how to ensure that when you take an action, it's going to lead to maximum utility, maximum impact. Right. And then the next two yogi codes are about maximizing the impact of your practice, your action. Mm-hmm. So abhyasa and after that is vairagya. Mm-hmm. So abhyasa has, um, is a way you practice yoga. And again, remember the, the defining principle of yoga is the commitment to following the, the rule of yoga in all dimensions, in all areas of life. Yeah. So any action that you are intending to take to create higher level of coherence, higher level of integrity is yoga. So how to make sure that that action bears highest amount of impact, highest amount of fruit? First thing you need to understand the process of practicing it, how to make sure that the practice is potent. So whether it's asana, whether it is you trying to help a community full of people be more happy, whether it is you trying to grow uh, life in the farm, in our, for you to be successful, you'll need abhyasa. And abhyasa has three, three aspects to it. So abhyasa has nirantaja, which is uh, timeless commitment. So first of all, you, you'll have to be able to commit timelessly to, to this idea of whatever you're doing to, to that practice. You can't be like half half in, half out kind of situation. Yeah. Then, then you need consistency. So you need to be like, be working regularly on it. So you can't be inconsistent. Uh, now I remember hearing a master saying that being a thief can be a part-time job. 
the being an honest person is a full-time job. You know, mm-hmm. you can't be like, I don't steal for 23 hours and on 24th I steal. <laughs> but yeah, it's a 24-hour thing. It's a consistent thing. You have to, if, if you are about yoga, then you have to be consistent. You, there's no vacation days. There's no something like, okay, well, for today I'm going to eat octop- octopus you know, leg, but tomorrow I'll be, you know, uh, yeah. animals again or something like that. So you need to be nice. So today I'm going to be bad to my friend. I'm going to yell at them. But tomorrow I'm going to put on this mala and, you know, like be this nice gentleman. Right. So consistencies. Mm-hmm. And then you need the third thing. Dirgakala, nirantaja, nirantaja is the consistency. No, no gap. And then there is the satkara. Sarkara is the reverence. You need to have a reverent relationship with your practice. So a lot of times uh, I hear, let's say, in my class, let's say this is in models, if I'm learning linear programming. It's a very dry subject, you know, crunching numbers. Sometimes I hear people say, uh, you know, such, it's such a drag to do this. But having that attitude doesn't help. You know, attitude has to be, it's such a blessing. You have to almost, not almost, you have to assign a divine identity to that action. And then you have to do it as an act of worship. So you have to have that active reverence towards all the actions. It's better not to take an action, but if you're going to take an action, have that reverence towards it. So sometimes I become this odd person in a classroom where I'm like, no, I'm really enjoying it. And everybody's like, what a freak. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You have to be limited of that. So you, you need to have that reverence towards your practice. If you don't have that, uh, it's going to be hard. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so, Abhyasa. Mm-hmm. These three, those are the three steps that you need to put in when you're doing your practice or actions. Excellent. And then this is connected to vairagya, which is sort of often translated as non-attachment or dispassion. Uh-huh. So how is that related to abhyasa? Because you brought you sort of um, posited them together. Yes. So those are the two uh, two aspects to make your pro- uh, practice more successful. So the first is how, the the quality of accent itself, which is the abhyasa. Then there's the the quality of attitude that you take when you are acting. And uh, that has to be the attitude of Vairagya. Vairagya has been highly misunderstood, just like many other aspects. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, usually people think about it as indifference, dispassion. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the meaning. <laughs> it's, um, so... It, the objective is dispassion, but it is subject to three variables. Uh, so the three variables will be uh, Maitri, Karuna, Mudita. So when you are doing your practice, you have to be indifferent to all kind of pulls and pushes in order to ensure that these three variables are maximized in your accent friendliness, in your accent, compassion, and through your accents, greater reality, greater utility for you and the environment is ensured. Mm-hmm. And to ensure that all the other interests, you know, have to be put secondary. 
So your likes or dislikes, for example, maybe you don't want to stay up and use those three hours to finish that document that is needed maybe, you know, to enact a project that's going to help a lot of people. But in that moment, you have to put aside that personal discomfort and stay up, maybe take the red eye and, and do that work so that it can help maybe another thousand people in front of you. So, so the maitri, the, the karuna, the, the friendliness, the compassion, and the greater good comes first. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have, in order to ensure that, in order to ensure the coherence, you have to be indifferent for a personal likes and dislikes, personal comfort and discomfort. So that's that's the idea. So it's a, it's a, it's not, it's detachment as a way of actually being, because like you're saying, it's often misunderstood that um, it means sort of like you're detached from life, but really it's sort of detached from your expectations, not attached to certain expectations, likes and dislikes, so that you can be more available or more connected in these three different yeah, facets. Yeah, you are detached to any nuisance that can get in the way yeah. of maximizing coherence. Right. So, so that, but a lot of the misunderstood part is that a lot of people uh, use this as a cop-out where they're like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no kind of situation. And, you know, then they start to become delinquent in their responsibilities towards their families, towards the society. And that's highly misunderstood aspect of it. Right. Right. Okay. Thanks for that clarification. So now Danam or charity as number six. Yeah. So number six, Danam, number seven, Yasna, and number eight, Tapas. Those three are the three values of of a yogi. So um, basically, when you become a, a yogi, when you become a monk, what does it mean? What does it really mean? I mean, we we talked about it means commitment, but what does it really mean? What are the activities? What is your job? What is your description? Like, what is is motivating you? So there are three things that should be constantly motivating a yogi or a monk. And the only three things. The first is yajna, which means being a productive part of the ecosystem that that you are part of. Mm -hmm. So you need to... uh, Ensure that you are capable, whatever level of cap capacity you have, you have to put that capacity to serve in, in the service of the ecosystem you're a part of. Yeah. So do something productive. Do something uh, that is contributing to the ecosystem you are surviving in. And you will see this example uh, as uh, this concept of seva uh, happening in all the spiritual traditions. Christian monks, uh, Buddhist monks, Vedic monks, they were spending a lot of time doing tapas, but they were, and being secluded and doing their practices, but they all took time to serve their immediate environment. They did something. They planted trees. They went, helped out with the villagers, whatever it is. They did something valuable. So you have to engage in some productive work. There are a lot of, you know, uh, lazy bum yogis out there, or the people who call themselves, you know, yogis. I, uh, that's like uh, the laziness and, and yoga are like complete opposite of each other. You have to be very productive and like a, a productive part of the society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the, the, that's the first value. Okay. Then, um, so that's the 
yajna I'm talking about. Uh, then there is dhanam. And dhanam is uh, this uh, idea of giving, sharing. So as a result of your work, whatever level work you do in life, you're always going to have uh, some returns. Nature is very generous and it's constantly giving you. And you accumulate wealth. Physical, material, intellectual wealth is generated just by the process of being a conscious being. Yeah. And as a yogi, you must consciously not let it accumulate. You must set systems, processes, and enact actions that constantly maximizing your sharing ability. So you want to share, you want to give. So you don't only want to be productive member of the society, but as the results, as a result, the knowledge that you gain, the, the wealth that you gain, you want to share it. You want to share it with others. So you don't want energy to become stagnant. And uh, that is the second value. So there's yajna and then there's dhanam. And uh, then there's the third value. And that third value is tapas. And this is uh, the value that gets really highlighted, I think, in a lot of yogis and monks' lives. Yeah. It's important. And the tapas is about um, not necessarily austerities. You know, that's how, again, it's, I think, very third-person look, looking from outside in. But tapas, reality is tapas means fire. Yeah. And you are generating fire. But what kind of fire? You're not burning uh, tenders. You are are creating transformative fire. Yeah. So through your actions. And and it can be in all dimensions. So you can be doing physical practices to create positive transformation in your physiology. You can be doing intellectual uh, work that is creating transformation in your nervous system. You do meditations to transform your consciousness, and then you do service to you know, further deepen that transformative power. So there are many ways to generate this power. But ultimately, uh, yogi being a monk is like a, a very busy and responsible way of living, actually. Yeah. <laughs> because you are constantly, every day, you have to think about these three things. And uh, you have to uh, evaluate yourself that, okay, how well I'm doing on these three areas, these three goals, and is there anything more I can do? Mm. Wow, excellent, beautiful. So then we move on to um, Ahimsa, and actually to the root Yama and Niyama. And we have Ahimsa, which is the first of the Yamas, nonviolence. And then we have Tapas again, which is the root Niyama. So how does, I mean, I guess, you know, we'll talk about this root yama and niyama, and then I'm interested to see how, how we should understand the second um, instance of tapas in this in this kind of 11-step process. So do you yeah. want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So after all this is done, after we have talked about the, 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 the beginning, the, the proclamation, the commitment, the sankalpa of being a yogi, we talked about the the qualifications, you know, the potencies that you need. We talked about the values and we talked about the actions. Now we are talking about the structure of a yogi. So what a yogi, like now at this point, we are ready to kind of evaluate this, uh, this architecture, uh, the, the active and the silent, the, the dynamic and the silent aspect of yogi. So when you do all these things, 
you start to transform, you start to become a different spiritual being. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has two aspects. There are the static aspects, you know, um, just uh, silent aspects. And then there are the aspects uh, which are the dynamism. So there is like, let's say, the idea of the qualities of consciousness and then those qualities of consciousness and action. Mm -hmm. So yamas are more like the qualities of consciousness that is starting to emerge. And uh, and then you can start driving. You can start, you know, further working on it. You can take an active role in uh, sculpting those areas. So yamas are those. Yama is literally architecting divinity in your consciousness, mm. in your theology. Architecting divinity. That's awesome. I love that phrase. Yeah. So how do you do it? Um, the first, so there are, you know, for that reason, there are um, these uh, five uh, yamas, but five yamas are way too many. <laughs> 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 you know, I, I like to simplify things, and uh, everything else will happen if you just pick the root. Yeah. You know, Maharshi used to say, water the root, enjoy the fruit. Mm. And, uh, Ahimsa is number one. So, but what is Ahimsa? You know, Ahimsa translated usually as nonviolence. But that's like such a negative way to define it. It's like you're defining it as an absence of violence. Right, right. Defining it through violence, like that's okay. Uh, if, if I was to define you as, uh, Jacob is not a bad guy, right? <laughs> if I did that. <laughs> like, womp, womp. <laughs> yeah, it sounds kind of condescending, and it's okay. Jacob is not a bad guy, but then who is he? <laughs> not a great guy, but not a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob is a great guy. So, you know. <laughs> um, so here's the thing about Ahimsa. Um, the Sanskrit is a beautiful language, and it has three, you know, so every alphabet has a meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. So let's decode it. So there's A, and A means unbounded, infinite. So the Brahma, the, the, just the, the field of all possibilities, that is your true nature, that is your consciousness. And that real, realization will start to become more and more clear mm. and apparent as you do everything else we have talked about so far. But then you can practice that Ah. So Ah, Hreem, Sa. So when the unbounded and then the Hreem or the Ha, is, is this vibration that defines the process of uh, creating something. Yeah. When you take A and you mold it, that process of molding, that process of architecting is green. And then Sa, then Sa is created. Sa is you, your individual identity, your individual uh, chitta, chit heads. Yeah. <laughs> so your individual uh, fabric of consciousness which is made by the substance of unified field, the, the unbounded field of consciousness. When in its purest form, you take the substance of unified field, or field of un, you know, uh, unbounded consciousness, and then you mold it to build your personality, to build your individual self, that is ahimsa. So it is a process of embodying unboundedness. Mm. If 
you know, so that's the nonviolence. That's ahimsa. Mm. So it's not just absence of, you know, like not beating somebody or something like that. In, in reality, it is every time there is boundedness, there's limitations, the act of dissolving those limitations and creating something more unbounded in, in, in your personality and in your environment, that is ahimsa. So, so, so this is a more empowering, more forward-looking way to understand the idea of ahimsa, rather than just beating around the bush and let's not beat each other. You know, just uh, yeah. yeah. So wow, this I is, love that embodying the unboundedness. I've never ever heard that approach to ahimsa before. That's really excellent. Yes. Yeah, so then there are like, once you do that, then you know why do I say that it's a root yama? Because there are four other yamas, right? Yeah. There is, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how does you know doing ahimsa will lead you to become more truthful? Well, it's obvious, right? If you start to embody more unboundedness, more unboundedness in your individuality, and then the, the so you see the ahimsa. We ended as sa. Now in satya, you pick up from sa. So your individual, and then ta and ya. Ta means the surface. Sa means you, Ta means the surface, and Ya is the expression. So when you will start to express your unboundedness, obviously that's going to be the, 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 the truth. <laughs> there, there's no room to lie there. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and there's no way you can be truthful unless you start to embody more and more unboundedness because otherwise the truth can become relative. Yeah. So, you know, only... To, in proportion to how much unboundedness you embody is how truthful you truly can be. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it just becomes this philosophical talk. Mm. So, and then from the, the satya, you talk about asteya, which is like, again, we ended at a, and then you start at a, and asteya. And then, you know, that is start to manifest around you as this very honest, very clean transaction you know, very clean uh, way of working with each other. So asteya basically means not stealing. Yeah. Again, you know, it, I like to look at it more positively, which is like being more honest, being more uh, more clean. And then, then asteya leads to brahmacharya, which is, you know, basically the, the life of, um, of bra, again, means unbounded. As, and that kind of, so the first three steps lay down a foundation for a lifestyle of Brahman, of unboundedness. And then that that is what leads to aparigraha, where, because when you create a culture of unboundedness, then people don't want to hold on to their little things, they actually want to share, then there's more flow. Mm. So if you, you know, since I've worked a lot with business people, I'll tell you, if you create a culture of unboundedness, suddenly people are more willing to share their intellectual properties, exactly, ask their abilities. But if there was no unboundedness, there's deceit instead of truth. You know, there is a lot of like uh, coveting, and there's just definitely not a culture of unboundedness. So this is how you do it. So you don't have to think about all these other things. You just have to think about ahimsa, just one part. That how can I become more unbounded and do little things, and and uh, that's how you start to practice this. Wow, I really appreciate that kind of art, that sort of the way you develop that sequence from the beginning of the of the yamas. I've never heard them unpacked in that way. It's really kind of illuminating on so many levels to to think about them in, in that 
as a kind of sequence that sort of just kind of blossoms out of ahimsa. So you yeah. say that this it's such a, the same thing is true of of tapas. Is that is that correct? Is similar kind of evolution out of out of uh, tapas when we look at the niyamas? Yes. Yeah, so the tapas is true, and actually, you know, that the, the reality is the saucha is the the first um, niyama. But yeah. I have, uh, you know, uh, you. If you study a lot of quantitative sciences, you learn how to adjust it for the immediate environment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you start with constraints. Uh, and uh, understanding the current environment, I realized that maybe in Satya Yuga, maybe in the time when people had unbounded uh, amount of uh, fire in them, unbounded amount of uh, energy, then you will start with Saucha, which is the act of purification. But the reality is, a lot of people in in Kaliuga in, in current age uh, lack enough energy. You know, yeah. literally the energy is scarce. So my suggestion is to start with tapas. Start by building the transformative power. Don't worry so much about being pure being from the very beginning. Just think about you know throwing yourself in the processes in the courses in the accents and situations where you can g gain more and more this transformative power. And then that will ultimately lead to purity because once you heat something up, <laughs> the impurity starts to melt away. And then that can lead to, you know, santosa, which is the idea of, um, you know, being more content because obviously the irritants are gone, the impurities are gone. So what happens when the irritants are gone out of a system? It's more calm. It's more santosa, you know. So santosa doesn't mean that being satisfied with whatever limited you have. It really means having less irritable state of you know consciousness. <laughs> yes. Uh, so then everything else comes, you know. Then the swadhyaya comes, which is about uh, when there is more light, more energy, you start to um, feel more. Um, be more mindful, which is the study of the self, Swadhyaya. And then once you have done all that, then truly you start to feel the energy of God mm -hmm. and, and this you know, divine energy, and you can have a pranic connection, Iswara, Pranadhanani. So um, that's how the niyamas, you know, and those are more active dimensions. So remember I talked yamas more as like constructs of consciousness. These are more like processes of consciousness. I see. And, uh, and one, one I recommend for the current, you know, social and uh, uh, structure in the social landscape we are in is tapas. Mm -hmm. That throw yourself out there to uh, to gather up more fire. Yeah. Whichever way that you can do. All right. Excellent. So now we're on to our last principle, which is no niyamagraha. Yes. So this is the last, and this is not least, it's very important. The, <laughs> so I have, uh, I've been to way too many monasteries by this point, and, uh, and schools and uh, uh, businesses and households. I've actually spent a lot of time living with different families. I travel a lot. Yeah. And I found that people develop uh, these Stupid traditions. <laughs> that's, that's the way I can I can tell you. And it started with something positive, something good. Um, there's a story that 
long time ago, there was a marriage happening in India, and the family had a cat. Now, uh, the cat was just jumping in all the sweets and all this stuff and creating a lot of ruckus. Mm -hmm. So, uh, to ensure that the wedding goes all right, they took the cat and put her under like a big, uh, big pot, basically, covered her under that so that she doesn't run around. But then, because it was marriage, everybody forgot about the cat, and like two days gone by, and the cat is still under there, so suffocated and died. But oh no! I know it's a sad story, poor cat. But <laughs> suddenly, the you know the, the marriage is over. Now the the bride is coming back to the to the groom's house, and she's entering, and the mother-in-law realizes that ah, there is dead cat in the house. She's like, before she enters, let me take out this dead body. She takes that dead cat and walks out with it. And the bride sees that, oh, dead cat is being taken out. Okay, cool. Maybe that's a family tradition that, you know, every time a bride comes in, you sacrifice a cat. (laughs) (laughs) So she never asked. You know, mother-in-law never talked about it. And then what happened over time is mother-in-law died. Yeah. There were new, you know, children and new marriages. And this time they were like, oh, we have to plan for a marriage party. Let's buy some cats. We need to sacrifice some cats. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you can see that how, uh, you know, something innocent, some some accident that just happens, it can turn into these stupid traditions. Yeah. And I've seen it all over the world, you know, in all different cultures, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, Christianity, uh, corporate cultures. Uh, family traditions, little stuff, and people get caught up into these samskaras, these um, these processes that might have served a purpose long time ago, but do not serve a purpose, or they might have served a purpose two weeks ago, but don't serve a purpose now. Yeah. So the yogis, <laughs> there's a there's a saying at least you know from the tradition I come that there are no rules. There is one rule, and that's the first principle. And then there are no rules. Everything else is a guideline. So don't it's not get like it's not like the Ten Commandments. Then basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't get caught up. Uh, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings by saying that it's not like Ten Commandments because yeah, yeah. I love all the religions and all the religious people. I just want to tell people there that. So very diplomatic of you. <laughs> not just real that because I have seen I've I've been friends with a lot of beautiful Christian families. And regardless of intellectual anomalies and theories and this and that, the, the community still does a lot of good. So does a lot of Vedic people. And there's always, you know, like you can always sit down and intellectually try to dissect and you can say that, look, for logic, maybe you don't get A+, plus, but, <laughs> <laughs> but practice, you know, a lot of these communities, they came together, they tried to do something good. Yeah, so yeah. I have to look at that. But... Uh, the no niyamagraha part is don't blindly accept rules. Don't blindly bind yourself. Uh, don't let rules get in the way of everything else that we talked about in the yoga God. Yeah, yeah. I love that because it's sort of like after, you, after you've outlined all these principles, it's like, but don't get too attached to all these principles. <laughs> There's just one that matters. Yeah. And that's an incredible story about the cat. I really like that story. I'm going to use that, I think, in my own teachings. But one of... Um, uh, one thing that I've sort of just came up as you were saying it was, I, I'm curious what you think then, because obviously we see this all over the world, and 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 we might say that 
some of the kind of resistance to change is often grounded in a kind of fear of letting go of these things that are that are again you know they're just like they're empty rituals really so what what is it that we what is it that stops us or limits us from being able to kind of like let go of some of these essentially old habits well i guess that's a that's a conversation for when somebody signs up for deep mindfulness training right. in the part. <laughs> there you go. That's a good answer. <laughs> so then, yeah. So then let's actually end on that note. Then I, for those that want to actually explore more with you and engage in some of, um, in some of, uh, your activities, where can they learn more about, um, DMT, deep mindfulness training, and uh, and also the Swami Yoga Club, which we didn't mention, which is also another program that you're um, that you're doing. So maybe we can just end on that note of sharing with people some resources and how they can further um, explore your work and get in touch with you. Absolutely. So currently, um, we are running two ventures. One is uh, especially for yogis, you know, who are interested in uh, deep, authentic teachings of yoga, and. Uh, if you want one-stop, you know, resource for real deep teachings of yoga, then I'm willing to give all my 20 years of training to you. Uh, just go to SwamiYogaClub.com and sign up. It's a online space. Basically, once you sign up as a member, mm -hmm. uh, you get to join me three times every month live, and we take an aspect of yoga and we go really deep. So far we have been in a Kundalini journey. Uh, so there are a few more months left on that journey and uh, uh, gonna give everything a yogi will need to awaken the Kundalini there. And then we will move on to ex explore other aspects. And uh, the, another venture is deep mindfulness training. It is for high performers, high achievers, and uh, entrepreneurs, students, uh, executives, and uh, business teams. Uh, policymakers, anybody who wants to basically perform at the peak level and uh, create maximum results. And they can go to uh, deepmindfulness.co and uh, there is a description of DMT training. Uh, they can read it. If they're interested, there's an inquiry form and they can write to us about their needs. Uh, again, uh, it's a, I take very hands-on approach, so it's very customized training. Uh, that's why in the deep mindfulness training, you'll have to write, fill out an inquiry form. You can't just sign up or you can't just buy in. And then we will assess your needs and we can start the conversation and we'll see you know, how we can help you. Excellent. So that's swamiyogaclub.com and deepmindfulness.co or is deepmindfulnesstraining.co? Deepmindfulness.co. .co. Okay, excellent. Well, I want to thank you, Swami, for joining me. This has been a really lovely conversation. I certainly feel like I've had new insights into things that are quite familiar to me, but I really love the kind of fresh and quite pragmatic way that you approach a lot of these topics. So thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom with us. It's a pleasure, Jacob. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed uh, these conversations myself. And, uh, you know, when you sent me an invitation, I... Uh, had looked into your um, venture, the chit heads, mm -hmm. and uh, the embodied philosophy, and uh, it really got me excited and intrigued because I was like, finally, there is a venture that's talking about living it and not just talking about it. 
So uh, very inspired by your work. Uh, keep it up. And um, in any way, you know, I can serve, my team can serve. We are always here. Thank you so much.